Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast episode 4-402. And first of all, let me apologize for causing so much mid-workout vision issues for you last week. I got multiple letters that many of you had some dust in your eyes when I talked about the passing of our friend buddy. Or as my sister put it, thanks for making me ugly cry in the gym. "'Twas no my intention. I just wrote what came to me in that moment, on that day, when I knew we were going to have to make that last trip to the vet, and my old friend would need to bring some change to pay the ferryman. So let's not be all sackcloth and ashes here, rolling in the mud, tearing at our hair and wailing. Let's celebrate today, this moment, and the friends we have to share it with. And if a dog teaches you anything, it is how to live. How to live in the moment and enjoy that moment. The sun came up today. The reaper hasn't caught us yet. And we, you and I, we're going to fight that asshole all the way down. We are not going to sit around and wait to be caught. We are going to get out there and live and love and have adventures and make that son of a bitch work hard to catch us, right? And apologies for the show, or actually all the recent shows being a bit less predictable in cadence. Life happens even to me. Today, we interview some narcissistic knucklehead about pretty much nothing. And then in section one, I'll talk about committing, really committing to this marathon cycle I'm in. And in section two, I'll give you the draft introduction to a new book I'm writing on startup sales. And I'll give you a couple useful tips for this season. First, this time of year, we end up having to hit the gym a lot. And one of the things I do at the gym during my warm-up, because whether you're running or lifting or whatever you're doing in the gym, you should do a little five-minute warm-up. Don't go into it cold. So what I do is I get on the treadmill in my socks for five minutes. I set it at a slow pace for me, like 12-15 minute miles, and I just let my feet relax a bit and spread out, 
and it really helps get everything warm and relaxed, makes your feet stronger too. Second tip is really about consistency. One of the things I've always been challenged with, or especially over the last couple cycles, and especially since the 100 miler, is my legs are super tight. So what I've done is to work in a simple five to six minute stretching routine every day, regardless of what my workout is. And it's not the stretching per se, but the consistency of doing it every day that makes a difference. And it's really helped my running this cycle. Small things done consistently have a huge impact. And I've got a new podcast for you that I just started listening to. It's called The History of the English Language. And if you love words and language like me, you will find this fascinating. This is for all you closet philologists and lexicologists. And if you don't like these sort of things, it's going to be awful. It's going to be like freshman English. Remember those really boring lectures? Yeah, that. But, for example, I learned that there is a root language known as the Indo-European language that influenced, came before, Latin and Greek and Germanic and our own English. And all those languages borrowed from each other, but they were all descendants of the original Indo-European. I learned that the original Indo-European word for host had a dual meaning of both the host and the guest. Same word. And this root word gives us both host and guest, as well as house, hospital, hospitality, etc. And it also gives us the word ghost, which literally means a ghost is a guest in your house. So how about that? Okay, so you might want to fish those hankies out. One last buddy story from last week. So I stayed home with him Thursday, and even though we had a rough night, he rallied during the day, and he was up tottering around the house. And at some point in the afternoon, my wife came home, so I took the opportunity to jump out the door for a run in the woods. And as I'm standing in the open doorway, in my running kit, talking to my wife, the old dog stumbles over and sticks his head between me and the door. This dog can barely stand. But he's decided he's ready to head out into the woods with me on a run. A gamer and a wonder dog to the very end. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Hitting the training again. There is something pure about marathon training. And it's seasonal for me, like those people who embark on New Year's resolutions every January 1st. I drop into training, in my case, for the Boston Marathon, and it's a bit of a clean slate feeling, a raw feeling, a time of new beginnings. New beginnings for me means starting to train. It means long runs, speed work, tempo runs, core routines, and every other thing that is part of a successful training campaign. And in my life, this generally means January 1st, I point my body, mind, and soul at the next 100 days towards the Boston Marathon. And this means leaning into 
the freezing temperatures, the dark days, and doing quality work, not just showing up, not just surviving, doing the work on the plan and doing it as well as I can. My days and weeks circle around that schedule, and I look at it one week at a time. Where will I be? When can I focus on those workouts so that I can squeeze the most benefit from those workouts that my life will allow? How can I prepare to get the most out of it? To some of you, that may sound awful to be driven into the cold and dark, pushing your edge day after day, unrelenting. But to me, it's a normal rhythm of my life for over 20 years. And there's a certainty to the work. There's a comfort in the cadence of the effort. There's a worthiness to it that I can't really explain. It makes my life focused and somewhat meaningful. It gives my life not so much a rudder as a keel, something to hold me true in the journey. And truthfully, it starts well before January 1st, and truthfully, it never really stops. And this year, I started thinking about my spring training cycle in October, right after I DNF'd in my fall race. That wasn't the outcome I was planning for, but that's how it works. My abbreviated transition from the 100-miler training and racing back to the marathon did not turn out as well as I expected or hoped. And I thought about it. I thought about where I am with my finish times and my current capabilities. I thought about the new qualifying standards, and I knew I couldn't just show up for this training. I couldn't rely on experience and past work. I would have to do the work. I would have to do the little things. I would have to be honest in my training. At my age, it's not just working harder. When we are young, we can load on more volume and intensity. That volume and intensity will make up for many sins. When we get older, we can't do that. Most of us have new limits. We can't just work harder and longer. We have to fine-tune. We have to work with what we have. We have to look for points of leverage. You see, what we discover is you can't get to the finish line unless you first get to the starting line. And all the conditioning in the world doesn't matter if you're broken. We have to find that edge. That edge is absolute. If you're limited in the amount of volume and intensity that you can handle, what else can you do? Where is that leverage? Well, the leverage is in the nuances. The leverage is in the things that support the volume and quality that you can handle. And first, there is nutrition. Everyone talks about nutrition, but most of us, for most of us, that talk is good intentions and lack of execution. So in October, I committed to clean up my diet, no processed food, no alcohol, no dairy, no processed sugar, etc. And when January rolled around, I was in a good, healthy place. For the first weeks of the year, I've been slowly squeezing calories out. And this sounds simple and straightforward, but this is an important change to my standard operating procedure. Normally, I would go into the winter months not caring about my weight or diet. 
and this means starting the campaign heavy and poorly fueled. When I was younger, I could use the volume and the intensity to burn it off. I would tell myself that going in heavy made me stronger because I was working out weighted and would be that much stronger when the weight came off. I can't do that now and expect to perform. What really happens is my training suffers. I don't get the full benefit. I get give up on workouts or struggle through because I don't have the energy or I'm dragging too many pounds around. And I looked at my races over the last two, three years, and the good ones have been when I was eating clean and I was light. This year, I'm not only going into the race lighter, I'm training lighter. It means my workouts are better and I recover faster. And let's not forget, Boston raised the bar on us. Our qualification times are 10 plus minutes faster than when it used to be. 10 minutes in a marathon where you're already at the edge of your ability? That's a big chunk. If I age grade that backwards to my PR at Boston in 1998, which at the time was nine minutes under the standard, guess what? Now that would leave me out in the cold. So here we are 11 weeks out, and I'm already 10 pounds lighter than where I normally would be. And I'm hitting those distances, and I'm hitting those speed sessions, I'm hitting them well, and I'm gaining strength. And instead of fighting the training, I'm enabling the quality and getting the most out of my machine, getting the most out of what I have. And the other place where I can find some nuanced leverage is in my flexibility and core strength. I go through that stretching routine every day. I'm probably not going to be river dancing anytime soon, but I can feel the flexibility in my workouts. The consistency of stretching every day means, for example, my quads aren't seizing up on me and failing at the end of workouts. So that's my plan for running a qualifier at Boston this year. My 21st run down this rabbit hole. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. <laughs> it's, it's all in the nuances. It's not just doing the work this time around. It's enabling the quality of the work. And now for today's featured interview. May I call you Chris? You may call me Chris. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is Dwayne Hespel talking. I'm a listener of the program. I've been listening to Chris for about eight years now. And like many of you, so Chris has me helping him out with the interview section today. And Chris, why don't you give us in, um, in 200 words or less, the big story as to why you sort of wanted to look at this kind of a format for an interview. The short story, 200 words or less, the short story is uh, kind of running out of topics for the podcast after 11 years of doing this. So I thought it might be fun uh -huh. to uh, flip it around and do an interview and, you know, just... Yeah. Talk a little bit. I understand and maybe approach the Chris Russell enigma from a different perspective. Let's try to wean out some new information from Chris coming flanking from the side, maybe. How, how about that? Is that yeah. the way to say it? Sure. Okay. Good luck. Rather than, <laughs> I imagine, rather than you being in, in control and just sort of um, having to always come up with something, maybe there'll be a little surprise here. We can milk out something different from you. So, All right. Let Jesus take talk the wheel. Okay. Well, I don't know. Well, we could go in that direction. I thought I'd start this off, Chris, by first of all, acknowledging something that uh, is very recent, but very poignant to me. Your very last submission was a tribute to Buddy, your dog. 
And um, I, I'm sure most of the listeners have already heard that. And keeping it understated, because I think it stands on its own as a, just a wonderful tribute to your life with Buddy. And I'm sure many listeners would agree with that, especially those that have dogs and um, get out side with their dogs like I do. I have a couple of young dogs. I'm in the early part of that journey that I get out on the trails with, and I'm already connecting with them in that way that you so beautifully describe. I love your writing, by the way, Chris, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I think that that connection that one can have with their pet, especially outdoors, when you're both sort of on the same plane out in nature. And I think those of you who have not heard it, please um, check out um, A a Life Well Lived, Chris's tribute to Buddy. Um, So I'm sure that it's been a sort of a difficult weekend for you, has it, moving past that? Yeah, it's tough on the one hand, but I really mean when I say that we're celebrating what Buddy brought into our life more than sackcloth and ashes on what we lost with him because he did have such a great life and he did bring so much into uh, my and my family's world. He was just a great dog. I've always been a dog person. I had dogs growing up, but this was special. He and I shared a period of my life where I was getting back into running and the whole podcast thing. And so it turns out that Buddy has Hmm. more friends in the Twitter, in the interwebs than I do. So his legacy is even, even bigger than, than your immediate family unit. I mean, because we've all shared, I mean, I've shared half of Buddy's life just through your stories as long as I've been around listening to the podcast. So his life has spread out even further than what your immediate family was able to experience. So it's just been a wonderful life for him. And we can all hope to nurture that kind of relationship with our, not only our families and our, the loved ones that we have as people, but really even our pets can mean a lot to us. So that was a nice chapter in your life to share with us. Thank you. I didn't want to hold back, right? Because that's not healthy to hold back and sort of stiff upper lip it. Lift. I'm, I'm not a, a super emotional guy. I'm not a crier. No. But no. I didn't feel like it was right to hold back on that. So, And it was really sort of train of thought. I was sitting at my desk and just in 10 or 20 minutes, that just poured out of me, mm. right? It just, it just right? happened. And that's the times when I really appreciate writing is when you get in that flow state and oh. it just comes. It's almost like you're sort of the conduit and you don't yeah. really have a lot to do with it. Yeah. It just it just happens. And that well, was one of those uh, it, sort of states. And they call it your muse. I mean, you were in touch with your muse at that moment, weren't you? And it just was able to flow. One of my muses. Yeah, yeah. I think that's And then uh, one of, yeah. since then... It was interesting. I've been hearing from people and talking to people about how they were crying. You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah. geez, I just dropped this big um, sadness Chris, bomb on the internet. Chris, which I kind of it was kind of it, troubling. It was ridiculous. I mean, except for the treble in my voice, I'm really quite a manly man. Okay, I drive a truck for crying out loud. So I'm go- here. I'm driving down the highway, listening to this thing on a pod. Uh, I'm, I'm, I didn't, listen, I'm being a little facetious about being a manly man. I'm really not that manly, but I'm trying to just, you know, that persona seems to be important. So I'm going to, but uh, I'm driving down the highway listening to your tribute. And I, I can't even here I, and, and I am tearing up because I'm connecting with what you're going through. And that's exactly what I hope your intention was to share that joy with people and affect them. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I'm like, what's going on? But uh, that's why I appreciate yeah. it so much. So, and you're writing. Yeah. I want, and that's what I want to talk about a little bit. I mean, what I meant when I said kind of come at the side a little bit. And, and I thought about that. I thought, I think your writing is so good. You are such a good storyteller. And the word choices and imagery, I don't know how to really classify 
why you're talented. Uh, I just know that at least in a short story format and some of these anecdotes that you put out there, you're very effective. And and I was curious, Chris, as you were growing up, is I want to know the incident, the thing that happened when you first realized that I think I'm pretty good at this and I think I want to do more of it and, and practice this. Right. Yeah, I think it goes back to my upbringing, which is I was in a, a family that valued reading and writing and academia in general. Um, and we were always sort of pushed that way. And I've always been a reader. I think that's the source of it, right? So in, mm-hmm. in many cases, I'm just sort sure. of echoing stuff mm-hmm. that I've digested over the last 50 years, right? And you can tell that by listening to me. I've always got my nose in some sort of book or something, right? I appreciate good prose. Um, I do have sort of um, developed my own style along the way where I, I really mm-hmm. love words, uh, vocabulary, mm-hmm. and how they fit together, especially strange words. I'll tell you a funny story. Mm-hmm. Whenever people say, Chris, can we use one of your stories in this compilation or for this charity mm-hmm. or whatever? I say, sure. And then they give it to the editor and the editor goes in and takes out all those strange words. And it just oh, makes me crazy because really? I'm like, no, I ah. intended for that to be jarring. How, do you remember the first, it was maybe it was in, I know you went to prep school sort of, didn't you? Remember your first story that you had to write out? I always found that stuff pretty easy. Um, but I remember one time, so this is a new story, story you haven't heard yet. And this was actually yeah, a story good. about a dog. It was about a dog we Aww. had, childhood dog, that I wrote a story about. And I remember my family really liked it and everything. It was for some project at some point, either middle school or, or high school or something. And mm-hmm. I remember that mm-hmm. really well. And I was trying to play off the juxtaposition of, you know, when the dog's around you, the dog's nice. But when the dog's outside, it's killing woodchucks and digging holes. And that was, uh-huh. I remember writing that story a long time ago. So that's one I remember. But then beyond then, that, my generation, we went to work, right? <laughs> I got my first yeah, job, yeah. real no, job, suit sure. and tie job at 22. I was married at 22, had a house at 22. So it's a different world. Yeah. And there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for that sort of creative writing. So when I started up the mm. podcast, one of the reasons I did that was to have an opportunity to do some creative writing as an outlet nice. and have it at, be forced to do that a couple times a week just for fun, right? Nice. Sure. So you weren't really doing much in the interim between you know, school projects and when you started the podcast up. Yeah, any I was formal writing. about it, but I never got around to it. Yeah. I got a couple of a few chapters I, of that zombie novel in the desk drawer, right? Yeah, that's another thing that I connect with. I, I had a similar process in high school. I, I started to discover that I thought I had some skills there. In fact, I got second place in a storytelling contest. I wrote a, a little bit of a horror story myself. But I never was ambitious enough to look for opportunities to hone that further. I went in different ways creatively with performing and acting and things like that. Um, but writing, I always felt like I have the skills to, to do it. I just don't have the, the drive to to do the work to get better at it and, and then build on that success. So I just appreciate that you're putting out some good storytelling and writing for us all. I think a lot of us really yeah, tune into you because of that. Yeah. The other interesting thing about the podcast and the interaction with the writing style, and you will know this as a thespian, that it gives you an opportunity to write for the spoken word, and you can really hear the music, right? So you can use things like Mm. the rule of three. You can use 
specific words in specific places where you're going to lower your voice yeah. and pause on that word for impact, you know, so it, you can sort of um, integrate the two, the two yeah, you've uh, talked things about as you're, you've, you're listening to the voice. Yeah. You've talked about how you value the voice, the vote, the spoken word, and that you've become very good at making the pre-written sound authentically uh, original in the moment as though you're just going through your thoughts and it's coming out. And it starts with writing for reading, right? So it's all integrated. Yeah. It's yeah, a closed well, circle. You're, you're yeah. So what does, that, make what that does that have to do with running anyhow? Nothing. It's got nothing to do with running. It's got more to do with, with your, but I thought that was one of the things we need to, but let's, let's get into running a little bit. Let's get into endurance uh, a little bit more. Like, like that must be part of the reason why I'm listening to the podcast. And it certainly is. I think your podcast inspires me and others to get out of our comfort zone. I do know that the later part of your podcast, when you're doing your life lessons, I guess you could say, you often just say something that just makes me think, okay, this is it. I'm going to take that extra step and do something that I'm afraid of and, um, and maybe growth, you know. So this year I did choose a pretty big uh, endeavor. So I'm, I'm, I signed up for an Ironman. You and I talked about that at yep. one point. My first Ironman, yep. I'm doing Lake Placid. You've done a couple episodes recently with, well, an episode fairly recently, uh, a guy that's going to be doing the same race with me, Matt. Yep. So I'm already in my fourth week of training for that. And tonight's my the first day I missed a, a workout, swim today, because I was too crazy at work. Uh, but that's okay. But I guess my thing is, I'm a little concerned about my nutrition as I prepare for this thing. And I, I just got back from the doctor yesterday. I got a a nice report from the doctor that I'm doing very well physically and all. Except I have a little bit high cholesterol and I'm eating a lot of too many donuts, too many breads, and I'm not a whole lot of sweets, but I'm just not, I'm not being careful enough. How does a guy keep, like, I need to keep pouring the carbs in because I'm going to be burning so much on these long endurance training runs that I'm doing and the rides. How do I keep the calories coming in in a healthy way? I can't imagine that salad and a few uh, almonds is going to do it for me. You know, I mean, what what would you say would be something I should be looking at in terms of how I can tweak my diet to get some of that fatty stuff out and replace it with good good carbs for my training? Yeah, there's a couple of, I mm -hmm. think, fallacies built into the way you ask the question, right? So the first oh. would be that all carbs are not created equal, and the second would be that all fats are not created equal, right? And the third would be that you need to pour a whole bunch of carbs in to have energy because I think you heard me say this before. Most of us, even somebody as skinny as you, have mm -hmm. enough calories in you to do very long endurance events, right? You've got mm -hmm. thousands, tens of thousands of calories, fat calories in you that are there for you to use. You just have to train your mm -hmm. body how to use them, right? And the way you train Absolutely. your body how to use them is to go out and do those zone two efforts without yeah. dumping a bunch of carbs in, right? And so you mm -hmm. train your body okay. to work on fat. And it's a different kind of energy. But it's the energy you need to take on a, what, a 12, 16-hour event like you're going into. You yeah. can't eat enough carbs to keep up with that. Yeah. So you're going to have to use the, the energy in your body, which is the fat, right? You know, good I'm, carbs are things like fruits run, and vegetables. I, I, so I need to train myself to be okay with, with not dumping the, the, the bad carbs in and, and let my body get used to just feeding off of um, some of these stores that I have going already. Yeah, and then, but you do need carbs to convert the fat, right? So you need something to keep the furnace burning. And that's, there's products out there which are, they're not sucrose or they're not real sugary. They're more of a basic sugar type formula. 
and you don't need much. Mm -hmm. You only need like maybe 90 calories an hour in your Ironman and that, to allow you to burn that fat, right? But if yeah. you're a big carb addict, it'll take a while to get to start feeling good, right? <laughs> if you're running on just fat, it tends to not have the same high energy, in, especially when you first start doing it. it it's hard to make that transition, yeah. but your body figures it out. Well, I've got a lot of time. This is a good time to experiment with it and, and to wean myself uh, off into the right place. Yeah, this is going to be a good year for me. I have challenges on several levels that I'm trying to meet, and one's going to be to complete this Ironman. I thought from the topic on running here, Chris, I thought I'd drop this out and see if you have an answer for me. So I just was going through my own personal history of running. I've been running for about eight years now. I'm about your age, so I'm in my mid-50s, and I've run several marathons. Here's where I land. The four different race distances that are popular for people to run is the 5K, 10K, half, and full. And I was going through all of my numbers, and I realized how the first three coordinate pretty well in a certain pattern, and then the marathon takes a, a little detour from that. I'm just curious why. So my PR in all those distances, the 5K, it's, I average a seven-minute pace for my 5K. For the 10K, I have a 7.20 pace. For the half marathon, my PR is a 7.40 pace. And so wouldn't you imagine that for the marathon, I should be able to run an eight-minute pace, like if I'm adding 20 seconds to each of these races? Yeah. I should be able to do it. And I think when I go through some of my training for the marathons um, and I look at uh, some predictors, they're telling me I should be able to run a 3.30 marathon. I've not been able to do it. I've always fallen a bit short. Honestly, I don't think I'm committing to it enough. I'm, I'm about 10 to 20 minutes short on that number for my marathons. There could be a lot of reasons why I'm breaking down. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a long way to run, 26 miles. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Maybe. So you got to train to be able to hold that pace for that longer distance because you're running at race pace. When you're running a 10K or a half marathon, you are at race pace the whole way. So if you look at your effort level, your effort level is very high. It's a zone three, zone four effort level for those races. Mm -hmm. And you can sustain it for that amount of time. But when you double the amount of time you have to sustain it, you can't sustain it. It starts to break down. Right. So that hmm. takes exponentially more conditioning to get that yeah. linear result. I'm, and I'm what you're my... probably finding is you're pulling up somewhere in the high teens and slowing down in those last six miles, right? Yeah, that's about right. Between 15 and 18 miles, of course, I'm, I'm starting to feel and I think I pretty well fight through the pain, but I just lose the energy to hold on. I'm only putting in about 35 miles a week at peak when I'm training for these marathons, and that's probably part of my problem. Yep. No, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, volume and quality are really the bedrock for taking chunks of time off and getting to that, whatever that eight-minute mile or whatever it is, right? So yeah. you're going to find there's a big step up in performance in the marathon when you can peak up around 50, 60 miles. And that may not be achievable for most people, right? That's a lot, a lot of running. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing is the intensity, right? So you got to work in those high-quality workouts once or twice a week, whether it's 1600s or, or step-up runs or whatever that training schedule calls for, and that will also move the needle for you. I really like doing the speed work. I, I really enjoy that. I'm going to miss that. It looks to me like my Ironman training is going to be mostly zone two, uh, keeping my heart rate at about 135 throughout the whole day in, in order to make it to the end. And so 
it means there's going to be a lot of that zone two training that you're telling me I need to do anyway. So, but it doesn't right. sound exciting to me. I'm, right, I'm already a bit bored with the, with that part of the training, and so uh, hopefully I stay. You know, running continues to be my my favorite thing to do, and then I get back to some speed stuff later. I was going to ask you how your legs are feeling, and I really did think as last summer as you were going through all that long, slow training in the woods for your trail, for your ultra run, I often wondered how your legs would feel when you started to push them back into that speed that you need to to run Boston and these other marathons that you have expectations of yourself for. How's that going, by the way? I think I'm bouncing back now, but in the fall, my coach and I actually read it totally wrong, right? Because when I came out of the 100, my aerobic conditioning was through the roof, right? I had such a big base. And then we tried to flip that by doing some speed work. And it basically resulted in me being overtrained, you know, classic overtraining. I would be basically failing after about 10 miles, my legs would fail. And all that ultra training, I wasn't being real tight on the stretching and the strength Mm. and the nutrition because you're putting in so many miles. It's like, I can't, I don't have time to do all that other stuff. I mean, I don't really need to watch my diet. So I dialed all that stuff back in, in October and I feel really strong right now. I'm down close to 170 pounds. I've been doing my stretching. So my legs aren't failing. Yeah, I feel real strong. Hopefully I can keep it up for a couple more months and go into Boston. Yeah. Are you going to set a goal for yourself in Boston you're going to share with us, or are you you going to play it by ear right still? My A goal is um, to go sub 330, which I've been close a couple times over the last three Mm -hmm. years. Yeah, that's that eight-minute mile, right? Um, But, you know, Boston's a difficult race, and, you know, it all depends on the weather. But I have, you know, my PRs at Boston. I know the course, so we'll see. But I want to go in very well trained regardless. Okay. Well, the drama builds up again for us and we'll all be anxious to see. Now, listen, listen you put the word out that this interview was going to be uh, happening on uh, somewhere on Facebook. I, you put the word out and, there, and you got a response from some of your listeners that are, are looking to, um, you know, to ask them some questions. How about I jump into some of these questions that people are curious about? All right. All right. We'll see where they lead. Okay. Yeah. Dan Woods wants to know who inspired you to start running and who inspires you now. I'm not sure if you can pinpoint one person or not. Can you? Yeah. I grew up in a different time. So the guys who were running when I was, uh, Billy Rogers was uh, the big runner back in the 70s. Yeah. He was winning New York and Boston and he was a local guy. You know, he actually only lives about three miles from where I live. So that type of cadre of runners that's those are the people who inspired me initially. But I actually started running, and I've said this before, is I started running to get in shape for wrestling because I was a wrestler in the, in the winter. Right, so I yeah. took cross country in the yeah. fall to get in shape. Yeah, I was terrible at Good. cross country. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, you can't do everything. That wasn't for you at the time. All right. Hey, listen, Mr. Anthony McCann, uh, I know this guy. He says. Yeah, he's doing really well, by fi- the way. I've been watching him, watching his progress. He runs a lot. He gets out a lot. And he also, yeah, he does. He does. He's got a young dog. He's training her good. I don't know if it's a female or male, but uh, he's got his dog going running with him at times. Favorite post-marathon meal or beverage? Okay. Maybe you have one. So what I do, my tradition, I'll I'll share a couple traditions with you. In a, a travel race, so if I'm somewhere, and I've done a lot of travel marathons, Typically, if my wife's going to be with me, I will just dial up Siri and say, where's the best cheeseburger? And I'll go to some uh, <laughs> brew pub somewhere, and I'll have a big sloppy cheeseburger yeah. and a couple of micro yeah. brews. That's my, it's not good for me. It's not good for 
anybody. It's not good for the planet, but that's my uh, that's my post-race celebration. And my that's second answer too. is, uh, traditionally, hmm. when I come out of Boston, I get on the train and I go out to uh, Alewife in Cambridge, and I meet my wife there, and there's a restaurant there called Jasper's Summer Shack. And we uh, okay. and we have some have a seafood dinner after the marathon. So uh, right, and in your running clothes, you're talking about, or have you had a chance to change? Oh no, I'm all you're going into the sh- I'm all showered up by then. Yeah, you're showered up. Okay, because the shack would not maybe want to welcome you in it with that. Well, that sounds good. So what do you take the red line out? See, I I know some of the the Boston exactly. Tea. Yeah, you take exactly. the red line out. Jump on the red line. Yeah. Yep. Red line uh-huh. to Elway. Yeah. And it's fun because if you have your marathon yeah. medal, oh. they'd let you get on for free. Oh, look at you taking advantage of that. And nice. yep, everybody says, congratulations, you're like a, like a rock star. Because everybody in Boston and Massachusetts knows the marathon, right? It's a big deal. Yeah. A guy named David, I'm going to say David Michaud is how I'm going to pronounce the last name. But um, he asks a question. He's kind of a roundabout way. Um, it looks like he's been running a lot of distance. The last couple of years, motivation to go beyond. This makes speed work near impossible. So I guess they're running for health and fitness now and less for BQ. He wants to get back to Boston so badly, but he's not able to get speed work in. I think that's what he's asking. He says, is there a question in there somewhere? Well, I think it's something you know? that we all come up against eventually, right? It's especially since they've cranked down the standards for Boston. I mean, it's a major effort to get to qualify. I think it's possible. I think anybody could do it is willing to do the work. It may take a couple of years. But you can do it. It's a major yeah. effort. Everybody draws their line in a different place. And when you look at that and you say, I got to do this versus well, I have this, all this other stuff I have to do in my life, it's yeah. perfectly valid to say, okay, I'm just going to run three times a week, you know, maybe lift weights a couple yeah. times a week and stay in shape and have fun. I don't need to do this. Yeah. It's more of a lighthouse event for me. It's part of my life cycle. So if I'm not doing sure. that, I kind of lose my way. So part of my yeah. challenge, just like everybody else, is what do I do when I stop doing that, right? Can't always go faster. Right. What's the soft landing from being a, a running maniac, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's an eternal question. I hear his pain. You identify with that. I am certainly just outside of the range of, of qualifying for Boston just enough. I know it's something that I have a vague interest in, but if it's just a vague interest, it's not going to happen. I'm going to have to want it and be able to commit to it a lot more. I think I could do it with the right training and with a coach. I guess I just find other things satisfying enough for me right now. The pain I have to go to to get there just to be a little too much for me at this moment. But it's great that that's still hanging out there. It gives me motivation to keep going. And, and maybe maybe someday that's my next uh, challenge. Yep. Mandy, of all the folks you've interviewed through the years, which have been your favorites? Which have stuck with you and perhaps changed your perspective? I don't even know if that's something that anything pops out to you or not, Chris. So I really enjoyed a few years back. And it's it's funny how fast the time goes, right? This is probably six years ago now when I interviewed uh, Stephen Sagel from that NPR uh, show. And he was was hilarious. And it was funny because he's your typical runner. He's got a day job. That's his day job. But like us, it's like, I don't care about my day job right now. I want to talk about running. And he was just hilarious. That one's out there in the archives. Listen to that one. He's funny. Uh, Good runner, I remember... I rem- yeah, he's a good runner. He's fast, isn't he? Wait, don't tell me. Is that what it is? Or yeah, wait, or wait, something? don't tell uh, me. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's cool. Yeah, he's okay. Hey, Suzanne, I know Suzanne as well. She says, "What yeah, is the question? What's the question that you least want to answer? No need to answer the question's question." Okay, and I think she's 
pulling her typical antics here with this one. That's very what meta. Questions? It is very meta, isn't it, for, for Suzanne? But um, probably one of the questions you least want to answer is the one you sort of brought up the other day about uh, your conversation topic during the uh, Groton Marathon <laughs> over the new year. Well, <laughs> so... That's hey. If, if I guess if people want to get into the exclusive conversations, they're going to have to just get to uh, get to the Groton Marathon next year and run it to see what the topics of conversation are going to be. Yeah. So one of the cool things about training, especially around here, is I have people. There's always somebody else training for Boston or training for something. So when you have these two or three hour long runs, even though it's the dead of winter and it's awful, and I have guys who are my speed who I can go out and run with, and you know, you just have these mm-hmm. great conversations, right? And you think up the funniest yeah. stuff. Yeah. That's part of what's great about what we do. I'll be going out with those yeah. guys this Sunday again. Oh, yeah? With your running club friends? Yeah. My, I got uh, three guys doing Boston with me this uh, this spring from the club. So oh, they've, been, nice. they've done it many, I, I many do. years. Yeah. I do so much of my running training alone, and I actually I like being in control of my time and just doing things on my own like that. But um, anytime I do get together with the club here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I certainly enjoy the time. And they they're really big on going out to eat afterwards too, and really getting yeah. some good social time together. So yeah. at every trail run, there's some kind of a pub nearby that they can go and just hang out and just. Great group of people. I think I've talked about that before, Dwayne, that sort of thin line between uh, alcoholism and running that we see in a lot of these running clubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they can put them down a little bit. They feel like they've earned their calories, and so exactly. that's their excuse to put a couple of them down right afterwards. Well, yeah. Chris, it's been a great conversation. I'd like to uh, you know, let's move this toward the exit now. Is there anything else you'd like to share with your listeners that, uh, from this perspective that you normally don't get to when you're actually hosting the interview yourself? No, I don't think so. The challenge for me, I was talking about this last night when I was at indoor track, is I've been doing this for, what, 11 years now? And I'm sort of running yeah. out of things to talk about and, more importantly, things that turn me on, right? I always like to yeah. interview people who are interesting to me because if they're interesting mm-hmm. to me, then it's going to come across as interesting to you, right? Be able to tease that interesting out. And I like to write about things that are interesting to me. And we've covered so much that I sometimes feel like, what value could this be giving people? But then I'll get an email from somebody. They'll be, oh, you helped me do this, or thanks for doing that, or, you know, just keep it up. And, hey, I'll do that. You know, what what I'm grateful for the opportunity to contribute a service, right? So you're up for the challenge, but I mean, I feel for you not seeing uh, fresh material there and then having to work so hard to come up with things. And so I wish it could be something that is a, a continuous thrill for you. If there's yeah, anything you can do to just, help once, you. No, once you get started creating, it just falls in line, right? That's not the hard part. Yeah. So what we have to think about as a community here, the Run, Run, Live community mm-hmm. is what's the next generation, yeah. right? What's the next thing? I, I tend to do themes and I'll re-engineer it and we'll do something different, right? And we'll have some fun. Yeah, there you go. Just Send me your suggestions, and I will ignore them and do whatever I want because it's my podcast. <laughs> you will, or you'll steal the idea and not give the guy credit for it, but uh, you could do that too because it's exactly. your podcast, <laughs> which we all have the opportunity to do. I'm sort of in and out with supporting your podcast as I can, and if you say something that makes me mad, I just stop. No, I'm just kidding. But, yeah, I, I miss some of that content, that extra content, if I don't get my um, – subscription going again. Sure. 
All right. So, All right, so I think we've flapped our gums so, enough today. So, Chris, thank you for your time. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to maybe kind of lead you through some new, fresh perspectives on things. And uh, let's all look forward to uh, more to come in 2019. Yeah, run, run, live version 5.0. How about that? So we all look forward to what we have, uh, what we can see from you the rest of this year. And um, I kind of wish sometimes that the Run, Run, Live community would be more aware of who each other is. It's kind of hard. I can't put a face on your listeners. And um, I wish there was a way we could kind of get together and run an event together or something like that. But I guess that's just not something easily organized, is it? Well, I have to think about that, right? Because with the uh, online tools, you can certainly pull communities together like Kevin's done with the extra mile, right? Uh, Yeah, I guess that's what I'm comparing it to, yeah. It'd be nice if if we're running a race together and and you meet somebody who knows you. All right, Chris. Well, thank you. Now that exit door is about to shut, and uh, uh, we'll we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Startup sales. When life or death of your startup happens knee to knee with the customer. It's Monday morning or Sunday morning. It's hard to tell. All the days bleed into one another. A blur of cascading urgent priorities and unforeseen challenges whipsawing your attention back and forth, up and down. Products that stubbornly don't want to work all of a sudden before a big meeting. New investors asking for a quick call that you know will take three hours of frantic preparation to get right. Key employees having crises of confidence at the worst possible moment. Cash running out. The constant hot breath of the board of directors on the back of your neck reminding you of the ticking clock and asking, why haven't you closed a deal? You must sell. And you are not designed to sell. Every decision is potentially fatal. Every mistake, a hole you may not be able to climb out of, and you don't have the time or mental energy to give any of them the attention they need. You've long since given up getting enough sleep or having any kind of a life outside this startup. All roads lead to you. You are the startup. A hundred urgent, high-priority tasks line up in your to-do list. You get to choose four or five that you will be able to complete today and resign the rest to the chaos of the universe. Your inbox throbs with people and urgent things. Your mind is foggy and blank. Your world is turned into a work marathon that never ends and never becomes less urgent. You fall into restless sleep each night, surrounded by the screeching demons of the things you need to do. You wake up each day to the exhaustion of just trying to keep your head above the ocean of urgency. Your life speeds by in herky-jerky scenes like it's on double fast-forward and you wonder why you chose to do this. You have long since cast aside the fairy tale success fantasy scenes where everyone is congratulating you as you give the big speech to the aspiring students at your alma mater about self-realization and grit. Now, it is all day-to-day survival. Survival is success. You grimly march on through the days doing what you can. 
You must sell. And you are not designed to sell. Today is different. Today you must sell. As a founder, you never wanted to sell. You love your product. You believe in the solution you have engineered. You have a passion for the product. You created this company on the dream of that product. The problem it solves, the value it creates. The phone sits in front of you like a poisonous snake. You have the name of an executive you have never met. Today you must pick up that phone and call that executive and sell them the passion of your product. You must convince these executives that your product adds that value and solves that problem in a way that is compelling enough for them to become your first customers. Your passion and your narrative must carry the day. You have no proof. You not only have to sell the value, but you have to convince them to go out on a limb and trust you to fill in the blanks as you go. You're an engineer, an introvert. It's not that you can't call people or can't talk to people, but it doesn't give you energy. It takes energy away. It's one more thing that drains energy, and you'd rather avoid it. Maybe one of the other 200 urgent tasks is a better use of your time. Maybe you can avoid that phone call. Maybe you can send a quick email. Surely they will be smart enough to see the value of your solution and call you back. No, you must sell. And you are not designed to sell. Surely, you think, I can hire an expert in sales to do this so I don't have to do this thing that I'm not designed for. After all, it's in the business plan. You have a line item for hire salespeople. Why not do that? Why not focus on delivering the best product and abdicate this awful sales thing to someone who knows how to do it? Unfortunately, the same thing that makes you bad at selling as a founder operator makes you bad at hiring that first sales leader too. This is the highest risk hire your company will ever make. Your neck is stretched out and you are handing someone the axe. The wrong hire is at best a six-month delay in your business plan and at worst the death of your dream. The truth is that you are looking for a silver bullet. You're looking for someone to take this burden off of you. The truth is also that that person, the person you need to hire, doesn't really want to work for you. If they're that good at what they say they do, there's no reason for them to be looking for a job. They will say all the right things. They will convince you. They're salespeople. You are not. Then they will waste your time and ruin your company. This is a game you cannot win. Can you hire a sales executive to make those first critical calls? No. You must sell. And you are not designed to sell. Without sales, your company dies. Sales is not an evil afterthought. Sales is the entire reason for your solution to exist. Sales should be the first thing you think about in the morning and the last thing you think about at night. Sales is the key to startup success, and the sooner you turn to embrace sales, the more likely you are to survive. Sales is finding customers, 
who will use your solution to solve a problem and gain value from doing so. That is your entire reason to exist as a company. A solution that is not deployed by customers has no purpose. When they solve that problem and find that value, they will pay you. This is the value exchange. This is when your startup moves from being an idea to reality. Without those customers solving problems and exchanging value, everything you have is hypothetical. Once you have that traction from those first sales, everything, everything else is enabled. Now you can worry about building a sales process and a sales team and everything that goes with that. That's all mechanical. That's all known. That's all learnable. But first you need that traction. I think it may have struck you by now. I think you know who needs to make that first sale. I think you know you need to refocus your company on sales. I think it scares you, but you realize the truth. You know who must make that first sale. You. You must sell. And still, you are not designed to sell. But that's okay. Now that you know the truth, you know the onus is on you to make this happen, you can sanction yourself to get the job done. You can lean into that fear and grow into the success that you know you can be. And I've got a shocking bit of news for you. You can sell. You are passionate about your product and the problems it solves. You live and breathe it every day. You already are probably good at pitching your business plan and your idea. You may have already gotten investors to commit their checkbooks to your idea. That is selling, my friend. You just need help to hone that approach and that message in a way that resonates with the target executive who is willing to take a risk on your passion the same way those investors did. You need to understand your value and be able to pitch that value. What is the problem you are solving? Who has this problem? Do they have a budget to solve this problem? Is this problem big enough to make it onto their radar? You need to summon your passion. First engagements are all passion-driven. What is your origin story? Why does this solution need to exist? Why is it important to the world, viscerally, emotionally important? And you need to focus. Time is all you have. The clock is ticking. Shift your founder energy and focus to sales. Find the right people. Say no to everyone and everyone else. Be prepared to turn over a hundred rocks. Learn the objections by being thrown out of conference rooms. Be prepared to go back against the nose with power again and again. Because sales is the most important thing in your startup. Your idea, your product are potential energy waiting to be unleashed by customers through the sales process. You, the founder, are the key to unlock that power. You must sell. And you are perfectly designed to sell. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have looked at your reflection and fallen in love to the end of 
the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-402, so wake up, we've got work to do, shake it off, and miles to go before we sleep. My training is going very well. My strategy of losing weight and eating clean is paying off with some great workouts. I feel lean and strong, at least this week. (laughs) I've been holding steady around 173 pounds, which is somewhere around 10 pounds lighter than I normally would be at this point in the year. The first 10 are easy. (laughs) I want to see if I can get under 170, maybe even get down close to 165. You know, going to Boston light under 170. My paces are better and my staying power in my legs is better. But we'll see how it goes. I don't have any races planned for the spring besides Boston. And this is good and bad. It's good because I won't waste energy and risk overtraining by racing too hard. It's bad because I like to use those races as practice runs to give me confidence. So much of racing is confidence. But I'm in the midst of thinking through what I want to do with the podcast as well going forward. I think this current format has run its course. I mean, I like the format, but I want to bring up the quality and be more consistent on the cadence and the themes. So I'll probably be looking to get some help, uh, some production, bring the quality up so I can just work on the creative stuff. So I went out into the trails today. It was sunny and just below the freezing mark. We had a deep freeze followed by a heavy rain followed by another deep freeze. So the trails are nice and firm, but there is lots of ice and it was slow going. Buddy would not have liked it. He didn't like the ice, didn't like it on his feet. And I ran into a guy walking, quote, in quotes, air quotes, walking some sort of cattle dog. Uh, some sort of cattle dog cross that was wildly exuberant, running in circles and giving me friendly full-body hip checks. Fun times. Nice to see the people using those trails. Buddy and I, we, we made those trails. It's good for the soul, getting out in the woods, wending your way through the ice and the snow, and splitting the horizon, finding that rent where the winter sun and the winter sky meets the frozen ground. That's life, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Well, I had a new microphone here. It's uh, on Zoom H1N, and I think it's working correctly. We'll see. It's got to be better than the H2 I had. The H2 got all all staticky. I don't know. must have been something from carrying it around too much. 